Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Tim Smith, the owner and founder of Jack Mountain Bushcraft, author, teacher, school owner, former EMT, photographer, pilot, and a main guide for over 23 years. And I could probably sit here and talk for an hour longer about all the things that you've done, but I'm going to let you do that. So, Tim, thanks so much for being on here. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so these podcasts have been going really well because everybody just loves to hear stories. And I think stories in our culture, you know, is being replaced quickly with the Instagrams and the TikToks and all that. And I think it's still relative, but to sit and to listen to stories of old are uh, just to me so, so meaningful. And I just want you to kind of tell us some of your stories. So um, yeah, tell us your story. Where were you born? What had you grow up and all that good stuff? Take it away. Yeah, I was born uh, in Miami, Florida, and lived there until I think the first six months of my life. And then we moved to New Hampshire, and I grew up on the shores of a small lake with a huge backyard. Yeah. How old were you when you moved? Last six months or oh, so. Oh, six months. Yeah, like, wow. It. So literally nothing. Nothing. I'm, but I'm, if I go to Florida now, I'm one of like three people who was born there. Yeah. I'm just flabbergasted how many people tell me that exact story. Like I just told you about my girlfriend. She's born in Maine, literally lived there for months and then here to Texas. And I think uh, there's something that still, is there anything about Florida that still resonates with you? Do you go back? Have you ever been back to kind of stomp around and where you were born? Uh, not really where I was born. My mother lives in Florida now and I was there a week ago. Um, yeah. So we wrapped up our fall season and I went down and saw my mom and, and then drove over here to Texas. Nice. So what was it like growing up in New Hampshire along that lake? In the Slow, slow and rural. Uh, you know, this was obviously pre-internet, pre, we didn't have a shopping mall. My kids joke you know, they hear about 80s culture and things of when I was a kid and they think, you know, everybody was surfing and going to the shopping mall and like, not if you lived rurally, you just kind of didn't have a whole lot to do. So, you know, hence a lot of rural kids spent a lot of time in the woods because there wasn't really anything else to do. Yeah. Did you do any gardening or anything up there? Not as a kid, no. No. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I guess people from Vermont, I know more people from Vermont than New Hampshire. But I would say because they're, aren't they twin states, right? Sister states? Just about, yeah. Just about, yeah. About the same size. That, yeah, they're like, well, we don't do any garden because it's so darn cold up here. And I've only been up there a few times. And when I was in there, it was March. And it was just like snow was everywhere. Like yeah. trudging through it. It was just. So how many days or how many months out of the year up there do you get that's just nice? Like pristine what you would consider pristine where i'm at in maine we yeah. have 77 frost free nights a year 77 frost so free 380 or so nights are below freezing wow yeah it's amazing how many uh oh man how many people are up there like did you know uh Tim's Tim, uh, what's his name? Tim Swanson. You know anybody I, up there? I don't. I have. We're way up in northern Maine, like yeah. six hours north. You know, way way up. So, and I don't get out very much. Just kind of busy guiding and teaching all summer, and then once that ends, I'm anxious to get down and see my kids. Yeah. How how um, old are your kids now? Uh, my son is eighteen. My daughter's thirteen. Nice. That's very cool. And they live here in Austin. They do. Yeah. Very cool. Well, again, thanks for coming all the way down here and uh, doing this podcast because I love to have people in person. So many people want to be on the podcast, but they're like, are we doing Zoom? Or are we doing Skype? And I'm like, nope, it's in person. They're like, oh, seriously? I'm like, yeah, it's in person all the time. <laughs> but um, so when did your interest really 
blow up for nature? Like, did you, because you were growing up outside, but when was the moment that you were like, did you start knife carving? Was your dad taking you fishing? And how, how did all that begin? So yeah, we grew up in this small lake, um, central New Hampshire, and I was about four years old and we were at a uh, local little natural history museum because, you know, you can only swim so many hours a day before the parents want to do something with you. And my dad showed me this funny looking log inside a glass case. And he says, you see that? He says, that was a dugout canoe that the, uh, the Native Americans made. And some kids at a summer camp found it on the bottom of the lake about 150 yards from where we lived. So the way those things would work, they'd find these huge white pine trees, take about three days using fire and stone axes to chop them down into the lake. And then it's like a giant burn bowl and they'd make a dugout canoe. Wow. And these things never left the water body they were made on because they're so heavy. Um, when fall came around, they would take it, load it up with rocks and sink it, pin it to the bottom of the lake and then come back and get it in the spring. And that would be, act as a preservative. So this happened and... These whoever, these folks who made it were, put it on the bottom and then never came back to get it. And these kids at a summer camp found it in like the 1950s. Wow. So, so I'm four years old and I'm like, well, where, you know, where did these people go? How did they live? And I just had all these typical four-year-old questions. And it, I must have been torturous to be around for a while because I was just so curious. And, um, you know, so I'm sort of super fortunate to find my lifelong research interest at such a young age. Yeah. And then it turns out there was a big camp on our little lake, a big native camp. And I'm convinced it's because uh, brown ash or Fraxinus nigra, the trees, they had a big basketry culture was made out of these trees. And there was a big swamp there loaded with these trees. So I'm convinced that the reason they had a big camp there was because they'd go there once a year to make baskets. Sure. Man, that's incredible to hear that they preserved the canoe by filling it with rocks and sinking it to the bottom. So what was preserving it? The water, the, like the water stops the, the stuff from breaking down. They found like thousand year old Viking ships and things on the bottom of the ocean. And like, But when you remove the rocks, it just floats back to the top? Uh, I, it, it, this one was probably waterlogged and maybe it didn't. I, I don't know. That, I mean, if you fill it with rocks over the winter, yeah, you'd do that. And maybe you'd have to drag it up on shore and kind of empty it out and dry it out for wow. a few days. But, but that's how they did it back it, in the day up to like... I think about 3,000 years ago, the like the timeline of northern New England is pretty interesting. You had the, you know, up 10, 12,000 years ago, there was like four feet or four miles, not four, two miles of ice on top of everything during the Ice Age. And then when the ice pulled back, they had the Paleo-Indian period uh, for, you know, about 1,000 years. And then they had the Archaic period, and that was characterized by the technologies such as dugout canoes, and they burn bowls and cooking in wooden vessels. And then about 3,000 years ago, they entered the Ceramic period, and this, this is when all the technologies that we still use sort of came about. This is when they switched from dugout canoes to birch bark canoes, which were way more portable, and all of our modern canoes are the same technology you know, better snowshoes, clay pots that are portable to cook on fires. They, they didn't have those, you know, four or 5,000 years ago. So it just changed, life changed dramatically as a result of those uh, technologies. Yeah. I love studying that stuff. That's yeah, fascinating. Do you ever find in your studies of it, um, I get I get asked this question a lot and then I ask it to other people because I just want to know, what, we're doing it because is it, well, like, that's my question is why are we doing it? Are we doing it because we need it? Like for instance, a birch bark canoe. I want to build one, but I don't need it. 
right? So I guess, do you ever find hangups within the realm of pragmatic application to the what you're doing? Or do you think of it as more of like experimental archaeology? Yeah, I've never built a birch bark canoe. So after the 1800s or so, when everybody wanted a birch bark canoe, they kind of ran out of birch, right? Ah. So then they figured, well, what else could we use? And then they started making uh, the difference between a birch bark canoe and a modern wood canvas canoe. Two things, metal fasteners, whereas the old birch bark canoes were lashed together with spruce root and then sheathed the old birch canoes, obviously sheathed in birch bark. And then around the 1800s, somebody around Bangor, Maine, figured out that they could stretch canvas over the wooden hull and then paint that. And that would act similar to the birch bark. And they had an unlimited supply of that. So that's where the canoe technology went from birch bark to uh to wood canvas and you know they still i have a wood canvas canoe they still make them to this day you know now they have all this sort of space age plastics and everything but yeah the history of the canoe is just a super fascinating like study in technology oh absolutely so the irony is like we go out we do these big four-week canoe expeditions and the technology the craft has not changed since three thousand years ago since the stone age right and it's still like the it's never been improved on They've changed the materials, but it's still, you know, what that boat allowed people to do, it was a kind of a marginal environment and it made the hunters more mobile. So if you live in a marginal environment and you're a more mobile hunter, you have access to more calories, calorie surplus, you know, your society thrives. And yeah. that's, that's what those technologies allowed those people to do. And that's why they're still so fascinating to me. It's funny that we never, you know, you go to a lot of survival schools around the country and you take, uh, or, or, you know, watch a lot of survival TV shows, very rarely do you ever get to, I, I think, that aspect of the survival triangle, like the bottom of the triangle being like, you know, mental, you know, stability. And, and above that, you got like food and water and fire and all that stuff. But way up there at the top, I think it's transportation. Oh, it's and, huge. And we don't actually talk about it because you're trying to be found by search and rescue. Uh, you're trying to just stay alive. But... I watched, uh, you know, a lot of those alone episodes and I watched that one gentleman. I don't remember what season it was, but he built a boat. There's a couple of guys who built boats, but man, they were catching fish left and right because they went out to the middle, whereas the fish weren't along the edge of the banks and different things and those guys. So yeah, it's, I think it's something neat that all people should try to get into is some kind of transportational um, aspect of primitive skills. Have you ever seen a coracle? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, funny, <laughs> you, funny you, you should ask. You chuckled about that like there's a story there. Oh, there's a story. Oh, there. let's hear it. Uh, well, we build them on our courses. It's, well, Coracle is, they used to call them bull boats, and it's a boat you can build with a tarp and a bunch of brush. Yeah. So we do that at our field school all the time. But I was on a reality TV show myself <laughs> in 2014 called Dude, You're Screwed. And they, uh, they dropped me a couple hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle on top of a mountain, and they gave me a Coracle. So I had, to, I had to drag it around. <laughs> Did they want you to bring it back? Well, you know, it was sort of like a lighthearted take on the whole survival TV. So it's sure. sort of a game show and they give you these goofy things. And, you know, eventually I was able to drag it down this mountain for I don't know how many miles, pretty long way. And then threw it in a river and was able to make it back to town. But anyway. Dude, that's awesome. How many TV shows have you done like that? I've done, uh, I've been on camera for a couple and I worked behind the camera on a couple. Yeah. It sounds like you were doing that kind of stuff way before the big notoriety to it all came about. 
Yeah, they I was were. fortunate. I think 2005, maybe it was 2006. I worked on season one, Bear Grylls, Man versus Wild on the Alaska mountain range episode. Yeah. Uh, which was super fun. That's like, the real deal. Yeah, I got up there. It's like a week long shoot. Yeah. So I get up there two weeks in advance and it's me and these two British guys who were the producers, directors, and we're like going around, they're renting jet boats to go out to the glaciers and they're, they're doing all like the reconnaissance work, trying to find all the places they're going to film and just super fun, right? Like yeah, you wake up in the morning, have breakfast and the guy says, right, I've just rented us a jet boat for, I don't know, five grand to take us on a private tour yeah. of the glacier. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. It's a work day. I love it. Oh. I got to do that on uh, Discovery Channel with Dual Survivor. Nice. They took us out to West Texas, and it was the exact same thing. We had to get out there two weeks earlier to scout, and I was there like, I don't know, consultant for the desert, and nice. yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun. I just had to walk around and tell them, like, well, I would fish here, and I'd look for snakes here, and I'd be weary of this, and I'd build out of this, and then they just took that report and then handed it over, and uh, yeah, it's fun to do that stuff. I think that's the cool part of the show is getting to be on the back end and helping design and create it all. But you were out there with an actual coracle trying, they were filming you or were you helping out? No, no, they were filming me. Yeah. You uh, were on the show. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, <laughs> it's okay. Like it was super fun to do, um, you know, and they're like, Oh, is it really hard? And you know, as a guide, I sort of spend my time chasing other people around and right. making sure that they don't get hurt. So they're like, Oh, how hard is this for you? And I'm like, are you kidding? Like I'm by myself. I yeah. have nobody to worry about. This is great. <laughs> uh, so I had super fun doing it. I, I wouldn't ever want to try to make like a career out of TV work. Um, just because it's, I don't think it's that much fun, but, but it's super fun to go do is like a one-off. I had a yeah. blast. Dude, I think that you would do great on a loan. Have you ever applied? Nope. Uh, one of our alumni won the season in Mongolia. Uh, so we've had a lot of alumni go on and be super successful. What was that? Sam? Yeah, Sam Larson. Sam Larson won. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great guy. He would have won that first season that he was on too. <laughs> yeah, I really, I, didn't they boot him off because of his health? I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. I did. Sam was crushing it. Yeah. Sam's a, that's amazing. He, so he was taught by you and Jack mountain. Yeah. He, when he finished high school, he went to high school in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the summer after like two weeks after he graduated from high school, he showed up at our place and he was there for a month in the summer. And yeah, we had a blast. You know, we still, we still converse and great guy. Um, so yeah, we've had him on alone. We've had a guy named Ryan Holt kill it on naked and afraid about six times. And so we've just had, you know, our alumni have done super well and, and it's great to, you know, I love hearing about all their success, right? I'm just super excited for them and, and it's, it's fun to hear. Yeah. That's got to make you feel really good to know that those people were able to take those skills and go apply them, not only in their passion, but like in their life. I mean, that definitely helps to win money and to help get uh, followers and things like that for your content and you know if you're producing a product so I know I know Sam's doing well with all his uh, followers and everything and the content he's making a lot of those alone guys are even the guys who didn't win are yeah. doing great and I take no you know? credit for like Sam's no 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 I'm not gumption like yeah I'm he not would have been that. successful whether he came to us or not but right I'm just super grateful and happy for him and you know I think he's a great guy and and again we still talk and I'm happy he's out there crushing it. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> there's a lot of, um, you know, cultural anthropology studies that are being done right now. And you've dove into that. You've, you've say you have a background in it. And what is it like being able to apply that to, <clears throat> you know, these primitive skills? 
So uh, on our long courses that we run, um, you know, we've got a series of different things. And one of the beauties of having a longer course is that you can really dive in and get deep, right? Yeah. So like, here's my anthropology nerd uh, in action. So years ago, I, I met a guy, I studied with a guy named uh, George Michaud. And George was the guy in uh, the modern world. He's like a regular rabbit stick. I don't know if he still is. I haven't talked to him or heard from him in quite a while. But he's the guy that sort of figured out the modern version of this deadfall trap called a promontory peg, right? It's just a simple little split stick deadfall. And uh, they would use it. It was all over the desert southwest. They would use it to catch uh, pack rats, things like that. So, okay, I'm, so I'm familiar with this trap. And then a number of years later, it's only been about five years later. Did you ever see the documentary Happy People, A Year in the Taiga? No. It's like these Siberian trappers. They go out and follow them around. It's a Werner Herzog film. Really well done. Right? Oh, is it about trapping wolves? I don't know if it's wolves. Uh, ah, he's mostly trapping like Martin, but he's got these big skis and stuff. It, it's, no, it it's a really it interesting I'm going to check it out. So he's got these Martin traps, and, and he shows them, and he calls it a Kuliumka trap. And I look at that thing, and I'm like, hmm. That is the promontory peg with one added bait stick. So that's where, like, my mind goes at these things. And I'm just fascinated by, okay, so this thing, these two traps obviously have a common ancestor. It's the same thing. But then maybe after that traveled across the land bridge during the Stone Age, maybe something got added or didn't get added. And so, you know, I look at it from that perspective. Like, what are the common the common origins of some of these technologies. And it just fascinates me. Yeah. You know, I don't know uh, how much you have studied or know of uh, Tom Brown, but that was one of the things that always resonated with me that he, or I read in his book was that um, pure eternal truths. And that's what I look for in just that. Like what are the underlying connecting threads of all of this and us and as a communal species. So yeah, I'm right there with you of, Oh, there is a tie between these two traps and now what's that connective, you know, essence and how did it come to be? Cause to me, it's all about uh, pragmatic application. Nobody was doing things like for instance, going back to the cultural anthropology question was like, things disappear when they don't serve us, you know? Definitely. And I think whether it be, you know, religious or uh, physical or um, intake, you know, what, uh, water and different things like that drinks um yeah it, it definitely changes and i'm so fascinated by is it the penobscot and the passamaquoddy and a lot of the algonquin and native tribes that were up there in your area mm -hmm. what what other ones are up there in maine i'm curious uh maliseet uh micmac micmac is more a little more like uh, new brunswick nova scotia but obviously wasn't that long ago, and none of those political lines mattered. It was all yeah, no. You know, historically, with native cultures, especially big canoe cultures like we have, it's all based on drainages. Not yeah, it's based on like random lines through the woods. Right, and is it? Um, I think it was. Is it the Wampanoags? They were in Connecticut, Connecticut slash New England area there, um, and then the Iroquois. They were no. They were up in Canada. Well, yeah, a little further west, New York State, New York. That's right. That's right. I'm trying to like piece together my map in my head. And um, so do you see a lot of overlap? So I know like, for instance, the Penobscot with their pine needle baskets. Do y'all do pine needle baskets up there in Maine? Do y'all have a lot of that? 
Yeah, so the Penobscot, like the big basket tree tradition yeah. in our part of the world was always the brown ash plated baskets, like the pack baskets, those sorts of things. Yeah. Because that's where, those were their backpacks. That's how they carried things through the woods. I mean, there was a, that was a huge part of their culture. And tragically, right now, we've got this uh, ash beetle that's coming through yes. and it's going to decimate all of the ash. So these cultures are going to lose a huge part of their heritage as we, you know, the ash trees sort of die back. Yeah. And is there, are there measures being taken to stop it are they introducing other things i know that's what they always do they're like yeah, oh we'll get something to introduce to kill this beetle <laughs> i know a guy crazy. who's like a professional basket maker from michigan and he says they're, they're all gone there now all of them are gone so like that's what's kind of what's coming holy cow well hopefully there's measures being taken to preserve those it's black ash right like yeah the, well it's the same in maine they call it brown ash everywhere brown else ash. they call it black ash, black ash. fraxinus nigra yeah. right I think I have a, it's actually called an Adirondack pack frame basket made out of black ash out in my garage. So from long ago, not anything recent. Yeah, I'm I'm um, always interested in how the cultures got around to each other too and what the overlap was like. I don't know this 100%, but I'm my understanding of what a winter count was was when Native Americans would all get together in a place. Now, I was curious if you knew anything about up there in the Northeast, if there was a thing, a gathering every year or every by year that they would go to to trade or to meet, you know, because I'm, I'm intrigued by how they were doing all that. Yeah, definitely. But it was never in the winter. No. So it was a seasonal cycle. Um, one of the things we do for the last 20 years, I've taken people up and we go up to northern Quebec and go out with our Cree Indian friends from a little town called Uje Bugamu. And we go out with my friend David Bosom, who's been a mentor of mine. Great guy. Like he never lived in a town till he was 45, like literally born in a tent. And they used to do this seasonal cycle. So they'd spend all winter. And this was the same, you know, back in the day in our part of Maine, but all the way up over northern Quebec. But in the, in the, uh, winter you'd be up on your uh, family's hunting grounds trapping hunting and then in the summer or spring high water you jump in boats and you f go down to wherever you're going to meet everybody so David and his family would go to Lake Shibugamu in northern Quebec in our part of Maine everybody would go down to the coast because when the black flies come out you don't want to be in the woods and there's lots to eat at the coast and they can put up with those population densities but then in the fall they would pull canoes back up to the hunting grounds. so it was this big seasonal cycle of travel right and then again that's where some of those travel technologies come in so in our part of the world we do a lot of polling canoes which is where you get a 12 foot long stick and you push off on the bottom and that allows you to go up rivers as well as down so you know that's one of the kind of i don't know dying skill sets that we're trying to prolong and and give new life to on our program so lots of people come through our place and they learn how to pull a canoe but then you know, that's really the only practical way you're going to go up a long distance up river or up rapids or things like that. Yeah. That's, uh, did Lewis and Clark go up river? Yeah. They went up the whole Missouri, the whole Missouri, but they went up. Yeah. How is that? Were they polling? I, I honestly don't know. It's a good question to ask Tom Elpel. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah. Um, now I'm curious. Cause now, now that you say that like up river, I'm starting to think all the times that I've gone on like big, like I went down the Yellowstone, like the whole Yellowstone. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you don't go upriver ever. So 
That so is an interesting art. Our part of the world, uh, everybody would pull canoes. It's just the traditional thing. But then two things led to that dying out. Number one was the expanse of all the logging roads everywhere. So you could get to the headwaters of some of these remote rivers. And number two, the outboard motor. So here are two technologies that killed off the older technology, which is, you know, pulling up river. But yeah. but it takes a lot to run an outboard and it takes a lot of infrastructure to build a road. So, you know, the beauty is to this day, we can still grab a boat, grab a pole and, you know, let's push up river a hundred miles or so and see what we see. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you get a lot of um, bald eagles and golden eagles and all that up there that way? We have a ton of bald eagles. I think somebody said they saw a golden eagle recently. I haven't. But the interesting thing, growing up in New England, I never saw a bald eagle until I was like living in Alaska at age 25. Really? And then I saw a bald eagle, and now they're everywhere. Like oh, yeah. Our drainage all over Maine, they're everywhere. That's wild. I wonder what they were doing not in your area during your youth. Well, it was just the, the DDT from the 60s almost wiped them out. And then it's just like Whoa. they came back. That's that's what was going on. I believe so. Wow. I thought it was maybe one of those things where you just didn't notice them. Oh, and then yeah. All of a sudden, then you <laughs> see them and they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I do that a lot. People are like, there's hawks in my backyard. I'm like, they've always been there. They're like, oh, I just started noticing them. Um, yeah, that's, that's really exciting. So what? when did you become a main guide? And what, what did it take to become a main guide? Did you feel like it was daunting or did you feel like, oh, this is easy or because you grew up outside? What was it like? So Maine has uh, a Maine guide is a state license that you get from the state. You go in and you take a formalized test. There's a, a written component and an oral exam. And what it allows you to do is basically to get paid to take people outside. So up until I think the first Maine guide, 1897, was a woman, uh, Flyrod Crosby. And she was, they called her the Annie Oakley of the East, where she would go to these sportsman shows and like cast a fly into a paper cup 50 yards away and you know, someone would throw like a quarter up in the air and she'd shoot it with a handgun and a bunch of dimes would fall down or something, you know, like just those sort of like kitschy things. Uh, That's cool. And up until, uh, so they started officially doing this in the late uh, 1890s. And then I think up until about 1986, they just had a general guide license and then they broke it up into uh, hunting, fishing and recreation. And they've since added uh, saltwater fishing and sea kayaking and whitewater rafting. So, um, yeah, so it's a test that you go take. And I knew I wanted to work outside. One of my mentors was a main guide. And so I said, yeah, I'm just going to go take this test. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to pass it my first time out. So, uh, yeah, got lucky there and I'd rather be lucky than good any day of the week. Yeah. Do you have, you have a main guide? If you're a main guide, are you certified in all of those or do you have to become certified in all of those in each, you know, stance? So for like the, yeah, you have to get each specialized license separately. So currently I have a hunting guide, a fishing guide, a recreation guide and a sea kayaking guide license. And since I've had it, the way they do it now, if you have it for more than 10 years and you can document a certain amount of experience each year, they, they upgrade you to what's called a master guide. So I've had my master guide license since 2002. Wow. Yeah, that's because of all the, you know, again, pragmatic application that you're putting in day in and day out. That's what I'm always looking for too. And people are like, this is my experience of 25 years. I'm like, were you doing it every day or were you doing it like once a month? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I can rest assured say that, yeah, you've got, uh, a lot of experience. I remember uh, I, w- I looked at this, the Discovery Channel said, the most accomplished backwoodsman you'll ever meet. This is Tim Smith. <laughs> it's like, dang, that's a that's a high caliber quote to hear from somebody. So 
you got in, you became a main guide, and then what did you start doing? So uh, here's the here's the ten thousand foot view. So uh, growing up, I played a lot of ice hockey. Um, went to played junior A ice hockey. Went and played ice hockey in college. Had a shoulder injury that sort of ended for me, and got my degree in anthropology. And then I was all my uh, fellow students were like moving and starting bank jobs or something. I bought a $500 travel trailer and drove it to Alaska and lived up there and fished for a year with a friend of mine. And, um, we did a 30 day primitive living experience in the, in the Alaskan bush, which was pretty cool and realized I still wanted to live rurally, loved that lifestyle, but didn't want to wash much more windows or pound a lot of nails. So I figured I'd go back to school, get a degree in education, and then I could live and teach at one of these super remote schools somewhere, anywhere. So I actually did that in Texas. It was cheaper for me to be an out-of-state student in Texas than in-state anywhere in the Northeast back then. So it took a year, got a master's in education. And when I got that degree, I figured uh, I had these two mentors, one uh, Raymond Rietze, who was the main guy who I've mentioned, and number two, Morris Kahansky, who I'd been studying with off and on for a number of years. And I said, well, these guys both made a living working outside. Maybe I'll give that a shot because, you know, young, single, no kids, um, so figured, yeah, I'll try that and maybe get the regular teaching job next year. And now that was, uh, we just wrapped up year 23. So, but I still pretty much feel like, yeah, the bottom will fall out of this eventually. I'll have to go get a regular job. No, <laughs> get out of here. Nobody makes it 23 years and thinks that. Yeah, You're doing for, great, man. Yeah. You're doing great. I mean, there's so many people out there who are looking for this, I think. And the more and more in my opinion, the more and more technology that comes out, I think the more and more we're going to feel unconnected. You know, I always say the most connected you can be is how far away you are from somebody. What does it take for you to walk to them? That's how connected you are. I would tell that a lot to our students when they ask about, hey, what does the future of the outdoor industry look like? And, and I think it's pretty recently where more people in America live in cities than outside of cities. And as we become more and more urbanized as a culture, when these people do go out and experience remote places, they don't know what to do. They don't, they don't know how to interact. So then the, you know, the future of the guiding or outdoor education industry, I think is super bright because these people are going to need to be shown what to do, how to do it. Yeah. Do you think that they're going to try and incorporate anything, um, you know, AI wise with all this stuff? Like for instance, you know, the kids play video games all day. And why not make a video game that's just like survival? Like, I, I don't know if uh, you know about Les Stroud. He has been tweeting a lot and posting a lot of things on Facebook with him all decked out in like these, I don't know what they are, but there's like these little nodes all over him and it's like connected to computers. And the only other time I see that type of stuff is when basketball players and NFL players are making Madden and uh, the NBA stuff. So I think he, because he's in a canoe in one of them, and he's like going down this thing, and I think he's doing AI creation for a simulation to train people to do survival, but not out in the woods. It's like all digital. So you oh. can be placed almost like that show with Bear Grylls where you select your own, like we're going to make Bear do this, and then he does it. Have you seen that? No. Yeah, there's a new thing that kids have where Bear Grylls will, he's got a TV show, and you watch it, and then you can be like, Barry, you should do this. And then if you click that, he'll do it. 
And if you click the other thing, he'll do the other thing. It's kind of funny, but he could die. And that's the joke. It's like you killed, you killed Bear Grylls. And huh, it's like those old choose-your-own-adventure Yes, books. is exactly what it is. Huh. And so I think that's where this could be going. But if it does go there, I agree with you that it, I think somebody's going to be like, well, this is cool, but let's go do it for real. Yeah. yeah, let's get in this kayak for real. Let's get in this canoe for real. Let's really, you know, as the kids say, uh, punch trees and chop wood, <laughs> that Minecraft game. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think it is looking bright the more we get digitized. But I also am worried that it's going to be too powerful because like the kids we're seeing at Natureversity, you know, sometimes they come in and it's just like they're so disconnected. You know, and the only thing they want is to have a tablet in their hand. And that's what brings them peace. And, yeah, working through all that. But you don't work with kids any younger than 18, right? Uh, Not on our longer programs, no. Yeah. Do you have any staff at Jack Mountain that does any kind of youth programs? I did. um, And then he recently got married. And, you know, that's the, the difficulty we have. We're so remote. We're so out in the middle of nowhere where people... They uh, they come on board and they're super hot and then they get lonely and then they get married and then they don't come back. So yeah, it's a challenge. That is a challenge. Yeah, it being so far away. But anyway, I'm I'm positive for the future in in the technological sector for for children and us. I think it's just too cool. Once you pull a bow back, it start a fire. It's over. I feel like what do you, what has been for you the thing that just boom got people. Uh, I've seen, we work with a lot, we're on the GI bill. So we work with a lot of former military guys and I've seen a lot of like, uh, hardened killers, right? Like just hard guys. And then that time that they first get that, like a bow drill fire or something. So they go out in the woods with their ax. They've learned how to chop down a tree. They harvest a tree. They pick the right tree. They cut it down. They carve the pieces. They make a string out of a root or something. And then they spin that up and get a bow drill fire. And then, you know, I tell them, like, you're touching 350,000 years of humans' evolutionary history. And I've seen these guys brought to tears because it's such a visceral, like, first-person thing, you know. You you can't really explain it into words. And I don't want to oversell it. Like, not everybody has this reaction, but a lot of people do. That that's yeah. such a, you know, it's one thing to sort of learn skills and techniques but it's another thing to sort of create something from nothing and i think that's just a super powerful thing for people in the modern world similarly you know when people week one of our long-term course people are carving their canoe paddle right carve it from scratch using simple hand tools then by week six or so they've traveled 100 miles with a thing that they've made and very few people in the modern world get to make something take it from you know, just thinking about it to finishing it and then using it. And I think that's the sort of special sauce that using the things that you make, creating your own material culture and then putting it to use in that contextual environment. Like, yeah, that blows people away. They love it. Yeah. I felt that the first time I ever went to a survival school and made a spoon, Mm -hmm. you know, I started eating with that spoon everywhere I went. It's always in my pocket. It's a little wooden spoon made from cedar. And I think everybody needs to experience that in some way, shape, or form, and not like a rude way, but they need to have an understanding of like, this is what it's like to live by your own hands and make tools from your own hands. I just think it puts a sense of empathy on things more, maybe, you know, we don't just have this instant 
gratification type world. Like I know people who work hard and, you know, they go buy a hammer. But man, if you make a hammer, <laughs> it's totally different. You protect it, I think. There's a difference and a connection with, like you said, because when I, let's say, make an arrow, like I want to honor that arrow as a rock, right? Because it's way older than I am. I want to honor the tree and the branch that is giving up its life for it so that I can enrich my own with this piece of wood. I want to honor the feathers that came from the bird. I want to honor the craft and the lineage and the heritage that came into this skill of flint napping. You know, I want to honor this animal that this stone arrow is going to take the life of. And so I just think that's the difference in the separation between a modern approach to living versus a hunter-gatherer style of approach is you just value the things that you have more because you created them, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I th- and I think, too, it, it, it can be a slippery slope to try to cut and paste like a hunter-gatherer's mentality onto our modern Western sort of yeah, materialistic right. bit. There's a book I just got a copy of. Uh, I won't even try to pronounce it, but it's a word in Cree. And it's talking about the Cree idea of like health and wellness. <clears throat> and again, I've spent a lot of time up there with those folks, great, great friends of mine, mentors of mine. But in our modern world, when we think about health, we think about like somebody going to the gym and, you know, maybe aging, but still trying to look youthful. Like health is like someone who's sort of muscle bound and very physically fit. And, you know, it's sort of ego driven. People want to look good and whatever. And then when you look at the Cree's idea of health, it expands way beyond like the human body. So it has to do with like, yes, you need to be healthy in order to do your traditional tasks, hunting, fishing, providing for the people around you. But it also includes like the land around you. So it doesn't end with the, the human skin. It extends out so that, hey, there's a lot of beaver around that we can eat. There's fish in the rivers. There's moose in the woods. So that idea of health is it like incorporates the entire natural world around them. And I think that's a, just a hugely divergent view from sort of our modern everything is kind of ego based. Um and I think if you studied, you know, most traditional cultures, if that's how you live, if that's where you get your food, you know, there's no backup plan. There's no like, oh, we'll just, we'll order a pizza if we don't get any fish today. Um, I think people, you know, would take that idea much more seriously. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I want them to go do that. Because <laughs> again, I think it would create empathy for, and and, and gratitude, more importantly, gratitude. You know, we at Natureversity, we start every day off with gratitude just saying what we're thankful for. We oftentimes share some intentions, you know, because we just don't have that anymore. We just got done with Thanksgiving. It's like, oh, you know, Western culture selected one day out of the year to be thankful. Really? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I'm glad that uh, you incorporate a lot of that stuff into, you know, the programs that you offer because a lot of survival schools that I've been to is just like, all right, here's the skills, but there's no other essence of it and so i like that uh you get to have this cultural anthropology background and share some of that stuff so you'd mentioned earlier about some of your mentors um and morse Kahan- Moore's am i saying it right morse kachansky kahansky kahansky he said kahansky everybody else said kachansky kahansky he said he can't okay so that's how it's truly pronounced i just got a book of his it's out there on my table uh it's called the it's something about being a bushcraft teacher it's like a real thin little book. Huh. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I was going to show it to you. Nice. Um, I think I have everything he ever wrote. But Yeah, this thing is, I use it to teach my teachers. Nice. Because it's kind of like a field guide for your staff is what I felt he wrote it as. But um, it's a really great book. What was he like? How, how many years did you hang out with him? 
Uh, I first met him, uh, I was looking at your shelf and noticed the Bulletin of Primitive Technology, right? Yeah. That that changed the world for me because before that I thought I was the only guy. I had a couple old survival books from the 70s, but you had no way. It was pre-internet, so you had no way to get in touch with anybody else. And then, you know, that thing showed up and I said, geez, look at all these people out there. And uh, read the ad for his book, got his book, Northern Bushcraft, was renamed Bushcraft when I was living in Alaska. And it was very specific to the North. And I was like, oh, this is a great book. And then, yeah. hey, look, he's I'm driving back. He's right on the way. So I wrote him a letter. He said, oh, I'm running a class that week. And so that was 1995. Wow. And uh, then went back, you know, I think four, four more times to there in Alberta. And we got to be friends. And, uh, you know, he came out East and stayed with me at couple of times and did some programming out there and so yeah just uh it was a while it was a while I was kind of learning from that guy and and it's funny you know you see him if you see his like YouTube videos you read his books he's sort of like this academic professor but then you know once the once the record button went off he was just one of the funniest guys you'd ever meet oh I bet just these ridiculous one-liners it was great yeah all of those folks are have you ever been to Winter Count and Rabbit Stick and all that? Went to Rabbit Stick in 1999 yeah and keep trying to get back, but uh, it just always falls like right in the middle of our semester class. And yeah, September. I can never get away. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is how everybody is out there. I mean, every one of those folks, ladies, gentlemen, they're all just diehard cutthroat tricksters and <laughs> jokesters, and everybody just rips on everybody. And But it's such a good community because you think about – you know, these are such good professional people, but then like you said, the record button goes off and they're just hilarious. So anyone, anyone listening yeah, go hang out with the, uh, the Utah anthropologists and folks at, you know, winter count in Rexburg, Idaho of uh, rabbit stick. Any of those gatherings are great. So y'all have a gathering up in Maine. Uh, I think there's a couple smaller ones, but again, I'm like always, you're always busy. I'm yeah. always busy. I, I'm sort of scheduled like almost two years out and it's like, oh, I can't go to that. Can't go to that. But that's awesome though, that you're scheduled two years out. So it's Dang. not, it's not, it's so the way it works, like we had a alumni sign up for a semester course next year. And then she just wrote me and said, Oh, I, you know, I had something come up. I can't do it. Can I move it to the next year? So I was like, okay. So then I got to schedule that for 24. Jeez. So it's like, Oh, okay. And then it, uh, but yeah, so it's just, it's hard to get away. How long does that course she's wanting run? Uh, nine weeks, nine weeks. Yeah. yeah. And is it nine consecutive, like back to back to back or is it nine broken up? Nope. It's nine. They basically live on the property and we live as a little, little, uh, kind of family unit for nine weeks. Wow. And what other pro, so this, that's a, sounds like an advanced program. Are your basic programs also nine weeks where they go and just live with you out there? Uh, yeah, so we do, like, we call them the Wilderness Bushcraft Semester. We usually run two of them a year. They're nine weeks. This year coming up, we're doing a six-month-long thing where it's more like an instructor training, which puts together those two things where they're a student on one and they're a teaching assistant on the next and learning all about the educational process. And then the other big things we do, a four-week unsupported canoe expedition and then two-week uh, unsupported snowshoe expedition in the winter. And then we've, you know, we fill in the calendar with other, a few other shorter things, but the older I get, the less I'm interested in doing a lot of the shorter things. Like there's lots of places you can go and do that. Yeah. So uh, I'd rather stick with sort of what we're known for. Yeah, man, that's awesome. If I could take away six months of my life and just go up there, I would. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great to be young and uh, footloose and fancy free again? I did it as a, as a young 18 year old, you know, I was traveling all around all those schools, but now that I have a school 
and there's all these teachers that I got to take care of and the families and you know, it's, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I, I want to go away, but I also, I'm like, maybe it's like a ego thing. I'm like, Oh, are they going to be okay if I'm gone? You know, maybe it's my own personal hangups. It's not, not necessarily them. Like I think they're fully capable of running everything without me, but I also, you know, I don't know. It's your baby. It is. It really is. You can't abandon your baby. I can't. But I f- also feel like at what point do you cut the umbilical, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I owe it to myself to get out there and go do something. Maybe not six months, but honestly, I could say, you know, four to six weeks. I think I could get away if, and maybe nine if your course is that long. But I want to do something like that. I want to do something similar you know, that, or there's another school, it's called Teaching Drum, but they're like 11 months out of the year long, really in-depth, you know, pretty much living prehistoric stone tools. But you do everything. You're both a blend of modern and primitive, right? So you're not saying no to metal axes, anything on your trip and saws, right? You're incorporating both aspects right yeah definitely yeah there, there's no for my money the axe is the it's the most useful tool of the woods yeah up there in the north for sure because everything you're doing if you're living by fire and you're not using an axe you're trying to you don't get access to any good wood you can't light a wet weather fire you know there's all these sort of technologies that come together and but the axe is like the central tool yeah how what uh, length do you prefer up there of length of an axe yeah uh so the if people are learning, I want them to have a full size axe. If it's a very smaller person, we put a minimum on like a 25 inch handle. Yeah. I was going to say 25 or 36. What are uh, they? Well, 30- in the Northeast, the 36 inch axes were big in the Western USA In the Northeast. It was like a, between a 29 and a 31 inch handle was the common three and a quarter pound head. Um, and then, you know, some of the smaller ones, they called it a three quarters axe or a boy's axe was like the 25, two and a quarter pound head. Yeah. Do you carry one of those in your bag? Like the, a small, like hatchet? Is that something that's always in your truck or I in your... I never carry a hatchet. I have one like somebody gave me for woodworking, but I've got, you know, a, I have way too many axes that any, more than any one person would need. And, you <laughs> Isn't know, that awesome? The antique ones that you <laughs> yeah. find over the years. And, and you just can't let them go. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I've got the two that I carry around. They're all antique axes made in Maine, but I've got a three-quarter size axe from the Spiller Axe Company, Oakland, Maine, probably built in the 1930s. Um, holds a wicked edge. I went like six years without sharpening it because it doesn't get dull. Dang. And, and then I've got, you know, a couple other. Is that company still around, Spiller? None of them are. Wow. Well, Snow and Neely actually is. They're the only one still around, but they have all these old axes and um, just the most amazing steel ever. And uh, But yeah, they're all gone. Wow. Probably things you'd find in like a thrift store somewhere at the bottom of a bucket pretty much right the internet and the world sort of decided they liked antique axes about <laughs> six or seven years ago so now you can't find them anymore. no so it's like you get in a bidding war on ebay or yeah something. that went the way with anvils too all of a sudden about six seven years ago yeah people were just like the blowing up is pricey right so yeah people were looking for deals and there's some like german you know forged steels that made their way to austin and people are paying three and four grand for these anvils i'm like what yeah, like yeah. holy cow are you out of your mind and then transporting it back up to wherever you're at in oklahoma or it's just crazy yeah. so um yeah that's 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 a cool cool thing to think about prehistoric not prehistoric um ancient axes in a way of like yeah, these companies aren't around anymore. This is an ancient tool. 
I like to think modern. of it like if if I could get a, like a genie to come out of the bottle and grant me a wish, one of them would be like to have each of the axes could talk and tell me about everybody who's swung them in the past. Wow. Right? You figure if this thing was made in the 1930s. I have oh, one that yeah. was made in 1943. It's got a stamp on it. So middle of World War II, they're cranking out axes. Like who who was using this thing? Yeah. yeah What's so the story behind that? Fascinating to me. I have that same wish too. If if I could just rub a genie lamp, I'd want to talk to, to have the trees. The oldest trees tell me all the things they've seen over the millions of years. I'm like, come on, yeah, let's do it. Because that's a uh, sit spots for me. It's like one of my favorite things. Just sitting in the woods watching. And hunters, you know, I brought this up one time uh, at a discussion with adults, and they were like, sit spots. They're like, we just out there sitting. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why would you do that? I'm like, well, don't you hunt? They're like. Yeah, I'm like, you just got there and sit. They're like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, you know, you're just sitting there watching. But the most amazing things happen when you're just quiet and still in the woods. And um, I think, again, more people need that. Yeah, the hunter's silence, right? Yeah. So super interesting when we go up north and go out with our Cree friends. It's a hunting culture. They're still actively hunting. Yeah. And they reinforce the idea of being quiet through social norms. So, for example, we were up there about a couple of trips ago, so maybe five or six years ago, or up there in the winter, and we went out during the day, and everybody set a bunch of snares for snowshoe hare, right? And then late in the afternoon or evening, we were having dinner, and a couple of the guys were just, you know, goofing around, telling sort of loud jokes, and Anna... Bosom, the grandmother of the, the clan, oh. says, oh, you don't be so loud. If you're loud, the rabbits will stay away from your snares. So like social reinforcement of that hunter's silence. And the men don't hardly talk. The women will get together and do, you know, it's a very uh, distinct gender roles, right? So the women will be loud if they're sewing, working on mucklucks or something. But then the men are always quiet. And it's just interesting because that's how they were raised. That's how they live their life. Yeah. You're out if you're if you're loud, you don't get to shoot a goose. If you're loud, the rabbits stay away stay away from your snares. If you're loud, the beavers stay away from your traps. So it's just kind of like socially reinforced. So it's that's another fascinating aspect of like studying the culture is like, well, huh, why is that why is it like that? Because those were the those were the skills that were valued in that culture. So let's reinforce them any way we can. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because <laughs> I've definitely uh, spooked all kinds of animals going on. On I'm sure you know, too, like when you're out as a guide, it's hard to try to, you know, all right, we're about to see some bobcats or a fox or a moose or this. But it's like, well, there's a bunch of people y'all walking together. There's no way that's going to happen. People, especially modern people, yeah. if you put two of them together, even if they have nothing to say to each other, they'll fill the space with talk. Mm -hmm. So it's so hard. Like, say we're on a remote canoe trip, right? And I know we're heading into some areas that are really moosey, right? We're going to see lots of moose. But then the people who paddle up to the front have to keep talking back and forth about some dumb TV show they saw. And like, if you're quiet, you'll see stuff. If you're loud, you won't see anything yeah and then at the end of the day oh, i'm so upset we didn't see any moose so i was like well, you didn't stop talking like he could hear you from a mile away <laughs> so then we'll have to have the talk okay no talking until noon today like yeah. nobody make any noise at all and then people their eyes are so huge because we saw eight moose you know or i saw a black bear on the riverbank and you're like yeah because you were quiet right so that's like that the hunter's silence it's it's a it's such a hard concept because in our modern western culture we sort of we put the loudest, most obnoxious people in charge of stuff. So everybody thinks that's what they should aspire to be. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I, uh, I'm just thinking about some of the sit spot moments 
had a squirrel crawl up my leg one time. I was sitting there for so long. This little fox squirrel. I was trying to think of what kind of squirrel it was. And I was just looking over this edge, and it, it came down this far left side of my this tree, but then it came over, and it was out on this rock outcropping, and it jumped from the rock outcropping like on my knee and then just went down and kept going. And I was like, what the heck did the, it? I mean, I was wearing jeans and just sitting there for a long time. I had like a khaki jacket on, but I mean, it's just like, how often do you get it to do? Like I did not ever in a million years think a squirrel would just jump on me like that. Cause I was just sitting still. I just remembered, you know, patiently breathing, kind of centering myself. Have you ever had any moments like that out there where just oh. animals just, the, in the springtime, the snowshoe hares, when they have their babies all over the field, if you sit still, I've had one come out of the woods. He literally came over and sat on my foot. Ah. So I don't know if he probably saw me. If he was sitting on me, an owl probably wouldn't get him. But crazy sit spot story from 2003. Uh, the first couple of semester courses we ran in New Hampshire, and this was a winter course. We went February, March, April. They used to be 12 weeks, not nine. And this guy, Peter Frost, went to the same sit spot every day 39 days in a row and he would go out there there's still snow on the ground and he's looking and we're studying tracks and things and he sees some fisher tracks and every day he sees the fisher tracks come through and maybe they weren't there every day but every two or three days they would come through and he sort of followed them to this big blowdown where a big pine tree had come down and you know all the branches were kind of jumbled and it's covered in snow and you know it's about a half a mile off of a dead-end dirt road so it's in the middle of nowhere and Every day he sees this thing and he figures that the fishers have a little den in there. So he's approaching it from the upwind side, kind of talking in his soft voice like you'd talk to a dog, like, it's okay, I'm here, don't be scared, I'm not a threat. You know, sort of that gentle talk like you'd talk to a stranger's dog or something. And he said on day 39, he crawled up into the little shelter and he said he looked up and he saw this big eye open up and he reached up and he kind of scratched this animal on the face and then he came back to camp and he said, hey, Tim, how big is a fisher cat? So it wasn't a fisher cat. It was a mother bear who was just waking up from being hibernating. So we went back out there the next day and we saw her pacing around and we saw the little baby cubs. And she wasn't really afraid of him, but she smelled she smelled me. And then they took off and we kind of tracked them and found that they had another spot a little further out in the woods and I was like, yeah, don't, uh, you know, don't ever tell anybody you did that because they'll, number one, think you're crazy. And number two, you're probably lucky to be alive as a result of that. So, but I think it was just, you know, she got used to him over time, didn't see him as a threat. Uh, so just super interesting. Wow. Man, that's, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Just to, as it's kind of wild. Uh, it makes you think of the noodlers and all the people who go around putting their, hands in places yeah i mean how do you not know day 39 you're like i'll just stick my hand up in I, you know the eye also like the eye opening yeah i mean when and then the question of well how big are they <laughs> that should have been your warning right there well they hadn't left huge. the they hadn't left the i mean the, she was in there and hadn't left so there were no bear tracks there was no bear yeah, sign that makes the, total sense and the yeah. fisher would come around and just they'd smell her and check it out and hey what's going on in here and because they're curious right yeah That's, but yeah, just super interesting. Oh, so I always goodness. tell that story. On That's a great story. Like, hey, this should motivate you to go to your sit spot every day. And, you know, the animals get used to you over time. They're not freaked out by you being there. And, uh, uh, 
you know, what a better, what a better way. But then also like, don't crawl up into anything that looks like a den because you'll probably die. Yeah. Just be careful <laughs> about the dens. We had a, we were camping out in this little area here outside of Austin and a gray fox, you know, I guess I'm pretty certain that was her tree. You know, she, we were near her tree because she would come in and she would like skulk around and like look at it and look at it, look up and like she would just dart off. And then one night, probably three or four days in, she just comes trotting through like camp and I'm just standing there and just watch her. She's maybe 10, 12 feet away. She comes trotting through. She jumps into that tree and runs up into it and like circles around like kind of higher and then plops down. And then I was like, what? So I guess she had been sleeping there a while, but we moved in and she needed to know like, yeah, are these people doing anything? Like it's not really, they're not really, you know, cause she'd come close and then look, but the next morning, uh, we looked up there, she was gone. But then about it, later that day, she came right back. I was like, what is going on? Like, this is wild. So yeah, I agree with you how animals will slowly get accustomed to who you are and what you're doing. And I think as long as you're not totally threatening them, like even when I grab snakes, I think this is me totally projecting here what's going on. But I think a snake is perceiving things like, I've been attacked before and it's these hasty, fast, rapid, maybe pinching movements of things that have tried to bite me. Maybe they've never been attacked. But I think also it's a natural instinct of when they get grabbed, like, you know, bite. But I think also if the bite is present, you know, when I get, when I've, every time I've been bitten by a rat snake or anything, I always just like get my finger up underneath there and it usually lets go and then it doesn't bite anymore. Cause I think they acknowledge, well, if this thing is going to kill me, it would have done so already. So again, I always let people know you don't have to be afraid of tarantulas. You don't have to be afraid of snakes and all that, but like just slowly get to know them on their terms and talk to somebody who's handled them because it's so much cooler when you get to, you know, see them on their terms, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, so. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm that weird guy. If, if people knew, like I'll talk to these animals when I'm out just so they hear my voice. And yeah, two years ago, I had a family of ravens had a nest in the yard. And then last year they had a nest on an even closer tree. So literally like 10 feet from my door at the top of this big white pine, there's a nest of ravens and I'll go out and talk to them all the time. And they talk back and, you know, super interesting, super fun. But you know, if the, if the people from the state were there watching me and interacting with me, if they had like a hidden game cam and here's this weird guy talking to the Ravens and they're talking back, they'd think, yeah, we better, we better <laughs> put him behind bars or something. But yeah, talking to the, you talk to the bears that you see, you know, you're always yelling at the moose and yeah, uh, just for fun. Y'all see a lot of black bears up there? Uh, I don't see them a lot. There's a lot of sign. They're, yeah. they're hunted super hard. So they're, if they're not afraid of humans, they're out of the gene pool pretty quickly. Yeah. Have you ever hunted one? I have not. No. Any reason why? Just uh, Again, I'm just busy always in September. Sure. Uh, Is there only one time to hunt bears up there? Yeah, there's a trapping season and there's a hunting season. But yeah, September. Yeah. So our fall semester runs end of August to middle of October. And that kind of eats up all of bear season. Is it a, like a lottery or do you just get a tag and anyone can go out or for bear? Anybody can go out. Moose is a lottery. Moose is a lottery. Um, but for bear, anybody can go out. Realistically, you don't see bears. Like if you just walk around in the woods with a rifle, you're not going to see a bear. It's mostly bear over bait. So you'll have a bait site and you'll kind of bait them and bring them in. Sure. And then you got to get permits for those if they're not on your own land and, like where I live, super remote, uh, super rural. So literally, if I step out my back door, it's 
77 miles due west of the Quebec border. No pavement, no towns, no permanent residences, nothing, just working forest. But you'd think in there there's tons of spaces, but you've got to get permits and there's, you know, they're all taken. Yeah. How does that work, a lottery? Do, do most people who get into the moose lottery get them? Or no. is it? I don't know what the success rate is. To, yeah. It's like 30% maybe. Okay. And then the longer you've been putting in, the your your likelihood of getting it goes up. So like if you've, I've put in for the moose lottery, I don't know how many years and, and never gotten drawn. So Wow. So, See, that's what I was curious about is like how often are people just year after year after year, you just don't yeah. get to go do it. Yeah. They, they have that down in uh, East Texas for alligators. It's on a lottery. Huh. So you can't just go out there and pop them all the time. Um, Louisiana too. I'm curious about other guides now because I don't think Texas has anything like what Maine has. Texas guides. Yeah, you, you can, probably have, I think each state has a hunting and fishing guide, but often it's just like uh, one of our instructors lived in Wisconsin in his youth and there you'd send the state like a check for 25 bucks and they'd send you your fishing guide license. So it wasn't more, it was more just about having the license. It wasn't about sort of passing a test to get there. There was no. Yeah, we have, te Texas has like licenses for hunting and fishing and stuff like that, but I don't know that we have like a texas guide certification like you do up in maine yeah yeah and so new, new york has something similar utah and then in the west like the rocky mountains and alaska the guiding industry is dramatically different than in the east so if it was say alaska uh, a business owner would get an outfitter license and then he could hire anybody to work for him as a guide that he wanted in the Northeast, you each individual person who's doing the job has to pass the state test to get the guide license. Yeah. So it's less, uh, I don't know, I think it's more democratic. It's less organized around bigger businesses. Yeah. It seems like it's also more standardized and congruent, you know, whereas like those small outfitters could say, well, this is your training as a guide versus the state implemented the training that they, they provide or, or that they want at least to be standardized. Um, so when did you open Jack Mountain Bushcraft? How long has it been open? You said 23 years ago? Yeah, 1999 we started. And uh, what was your very first class? What was that like? So uh, what did, my friend Dan Fisher and I ran a class. It was like, a I think, a five-day introduction to wilderness skills class. And, you know, we had fun doing it. And then uh, it really was the first year. And I think the reason we I was able to be successful at this because the very first year he had uh, like basically apprentices that would come and he had a 25 acre farm, coastal Maine. And these young people would come and kind of stay with him for a month or two months and kind of learn a lot of stuff. And, but he and I were sitting together once and he had a young person who had arrived like the day before he had a young person who was about to leave and we said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, we sort of standardize this thing and put everybody on the same schedule? We can do some fun stuff. Yeah. So we said, yeah. So there this we had this idea. And then I think we got a copy of like the Outward Bound catalog and they had these semester length programs. And I said, hey, what if we did something like that? And he said, yeah, I don't know. Let's try it. So thankfully, we were young and stupid and didn't know how hard it would be to get traction. So we're like, yeah, we'll just try it next year. So we threw it out there in year one semester. We had five students. And, you know, the idea of selling one or two of these programs a year as opposed to 50 weekend courses a year right. really appealed to us. And, uh, you know, we were off and running. So and there was there was nothing really like it at the time. So we didn't really have a template to base it off of. We were just kind of shooting from the hip and winging it. And, and uh, yeah, we just finished up number number 56, long-term program 56, a couple of weeks ago. So wow. it was like, wow, like 
yeah, kind of fell into it at the right time. How many students do you think you've taught? Uh, I don't know. 23 years, a lot. Uh, More than 10,000, huh? No, our programs are all pretty small. Oh, okay, okay. 10 people is about all we can handle because if we're, we did one semester once where we had, uh, what did we have? We had 15 students, two instructors, three TAs, a geriatric dog, and we just went out to this, we, we, you know, we travel a lot on our courses because we're doing guide training as well. Yeah. And I remember trying to get all these people and all this stuff up onto this remote lake and onto the back end of this lake, how many boats we needed. And like, there's a reason that the army has people that just do logistics. Oh yeah. Cause it's a lot of work doing all that. And I said, yeah, this is, it's just too big. So now we try to keep it around 10 or maybe 12. Uh, it's, it's more of a sweet spot. Yeah. That's a good, good number. I think you always have is around 10 to 12. That's about the max I can take eh, in like bow making classes. I don't take more than six. Yeah. If it's hide on and you got to be right there. And yeah. Hide yeah, tanning. I don't do more than four. Yeah. So it's just too much. I'm like, I know y'all are going to make mistakes and I'm going to have to fix them all in the night. But I mean, so. I've given a lecture at there. There's this big paddle sports show in, in uh, Wisconsin called canoe copia and like 2004, 2005, I went out there and gave a talk and there were 800 people in the room. Dang. So if you're not doing a hands-on, you know, you don't have to actually help people do anything. You're just kind of talking. Yeah, you could have as big of a group. I mean, yeah. that's the beauty of of online video, right? Like if people want to see it, they can see it. Right. Know? But there, there's the difference between education and information, whereas information is like a one-way broadcast sort of a thing. And education is an interplay between the student and the teacher and like you're saying, if you're tanning a hide, you can't show more than four people at a time yeah. what it has to look like and how it's supposed to feel. I mean, You could. I've seen people try, but then I see what the hides come out at, like at the end. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, nah. I just, I'm all about quality. I want people to walk away with an experience, with a meaningfulness. Um, yeah. I really like people to embrace their curiosities. And I think when... You're just trying to grab as many people as you can and smash them into something to make money. It just, it doesn't feel good for anybody. Like I've been there and I've tried those things and I didn't feel good and I don't know how the other person felt, but yeah, I want to give, I want to give students a really good experience that's unlike any other. And I think you're doing that in the most amazing way out there in Maine. And so where do your students come from? All over? Is it all over the world? Or? All over the world. We had a young woman a few years ago who was from New Zealand, which I don't know if you get much further from Maine than New Zealand. And she was actually from the town where they filmed The Hobbit. So they had all those little round door oh, yeah. places. Hobbiton. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But yeah, all over the U.S., all over Canada, all over Europe. Uh, I don't think we've had anybody from... Australia yet, but New Zealand, yeah, like it's just weird. It's sort of the power of the internet. And I remember right when, uh, when we got started, I had this little print brochure and I spent 200 bucks printing up a couple hundred of them and you'd stick them out around the little town you were in and, you know, nobody sees them. Yeah. And then the next year you put up a website and somebody's, oh, if, you know, somebody's interested from all over. And that was kind of the, you know, the, the luck that I had was kind of starting this right when everybody was getting the internet. So like, you know, you, you're, instead of the $200 printed brochure, you put 200 bucks into a website and then maybe, you know, a million people could see it. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I got up to Vermont and New Hampshire was I watched these YouTube videos of these uh, folks, Brad Salon at the, this place called Roots. And I just watched as they made bows. I was like, wow, man, that I want to go do that. So nice. I flew up there for 10 days, made a bunch of 
you know, arrows and bows and had a blast. And, uh, yeah, it will attract people when they see the stuff that you're bringing. And, um, I really think people see themselves doing those things. And so, yeah, that's, that's great. People come from all over the world. You said you'd not haven't not had anybody from Australia. I'm sure you're going to have some now. Cause we have a lot of listeners in like Brisbane and um, really? Melbourne. That yeah. Yeah, we, we do. I've, you can look at this map on the little thing and see where people are listening from. There's like red hot spots all over Australia, which I think are interesting. I'm like, are, are they actually, what are they doing? <laughs> How did they find me? Right? But, uh, I think the consistency that we've been having, putting these things out every week has been bumping us up higher and higher under the education wilderness and, um, you know, survival podcasts out there, but nice. it's, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun to record all these. So I've always wanted to go to Australia and then tell everybody that I meet that I'm from up over. Up, oh, yeah. See? That, that would be good. When I was, you know, it's so funny that you brought up the Australian thing. When I was there in Vermont, actually, there was a gentleman who was taking the bow making class with me. And he was telling me, um, yeah, he's like, you know, first of all, like this, it's kind of a weird class that I signed up for because I can't actually bring this bow back with me. And I was like, why is that? He's like, well, you're not allowed to like bring foreign woods Oh, yeah. To Australia. So I'm going to have to have it like checked at this like customs. I have to request like with this paperwork why I want a bow. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, bro, I'm from Texas. I was like, I have like 100 guns in my house. <laughs> and like, and he's like, wow. He was like, that is just wild. And then he started just asking us all these crazy Texan questions about Texas. And not, I don't really have a hundred guns in my house. Y'all I'm just kidding. But, um, that's like the 200. No. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I know it, it's just the joke about everybody yeah, yeah. thinks that about us. And yeah. so I wanted to continue to play into that what he was thinking. The border is crazy though. Like, uh, natural resources crossing the border. I was coming back from a yeah, trip in Canada huge. a couple of years ago. And I think I had a lemon in my cooler and it was like the, you know, the lights went off and the guys are like, you know, step no away seeds. from the vehicle. Like, yep. uh, just, uh, I, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to have a lemon or, you know, something. And no seeds. Crazy. They, uh, that's why when you go down to Mexico, they do all those cool tricks where they take the avocado seeds out and different things. I don't know if you've ever been down there and seen all uh -huh. that. But they have these, like, they'll juggle knives and they'll smack the seed and then flip the you know, seed goes flying, they juggle the knife, the seed lands in the trash can behind them, they keep cutting and dicing these avocados. It's really fun to watch, yeah, but I always wondered, why won't they, why do they keep taking the seeds out of these avocados? And it's because you can't come across customs and do borders with seeds. And it kind of makes sense, as you said, with the black ash up there. Yeah, you know, yeah it's for sure. That beetle, and um, I totally get it. I think they almost killed Johnny Depp's dogs one time when he landed there. Huh. He was like, yeah, I'm coming into Australia. They were like, no, you ain't not with those pups. And he had to take off <laughs> the plane again. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, Australia is, they, they, what was it? It used to be a prison island, right? Is right? that right? Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like all just the kicked, bad people kicked from the All the bad colonies. people. Like, so, over there. Right. And now they've all like, I guess, been prisonized together. So now they're all super, everybody stay out. What, what is going on? I I like, Australia is a weird place. Sorry, folks who are Never listening been. from Australia. <laughs> all these people are like, well, we're not listening anymore. You're talking shit about our homeland. Um, anyway, so what's been the biggest struggle for owning the school for you? Uh, I think it's just, you know, working remote and being away from family and loved ones for big chunks of time. It, it just puts a stress on relationships and things, but you know, all in all, I, I can't, I don't really have any complaints overall, but that's probably, you know, been the hardest over time. Yeah. Just family. Yeah. 
you yeah. know, cause you're off the grid. I mean, now there's cell phones everywhere, but you know, before you're sort of off the grid for these big chunks of time and you know, you miss out on a lot. Uh, I, I think I have the greatest job in the world and wouldn't trade it for anything, but you know, you're, friend calls up and he says, Oh, I'm getting married. So-and-so. And I'm like, I already know I'm going to be busy then, or mm-hmm. you know, haven't been to any of those rendezvous in 25 years. Yeah. Would like to go, but it's just, you know, what do you do? You, you either, you choose to, to work at it and, and do the best you can, or you maybe it's like a weekend hobby and then you can go attend all the events you want. So yeah. I, I went with trying to, trying to make a living at it. I, I don't know. Even when I'm working, and I think about like, uh, I'm just like you. I'm like, I would not trade this for the world. So, but isn't that the duality of being human? It's like being, you know, going to grade school. When you're at grade school, you're like, oh, I can't wait for summer camps. Or, you know, summer. And then summer's there and you're like, God, I can't wait back to be back at school with all my friends. You're always, grass is greener on the other side. When you're at home, relaxing, you're like, gosh. Oh, be in the woods playing. And when you're in the woods playing, you're like, God, I kind of want to be home relaxing. <laughs> it's an interesting, like, psychological thing. They call it hedonic adaptation. It's in this big thing in this stoic philosophy thing. It's sort of like... No, it's got when, a name. When you get, when you achieve your goals, you immediately switch gears and set your sights on a new goal. So, like, if my goal was to, like, I want to get 100 handrail fires between now and Christmas... And then the second I get number 100, I've already got five more new goals that I've got set out there. Or Wow. What is it called? Hedonic, say it again? Hedonic ad- adaptation or hedonic adaption. I'm writing this down, like folks. Hedonic adaptation. But just where like once we achieve the goal that we set out to do, we never like sort of sit back and bask in the glow of achievement. We've already switched gears and have our sights set on something new. Dude, that is the story of my life. Because we are creatures of very few needs, but countless wants right i was <laughs> i was like i think there's a book over there it's called limited wants unlimited means huh. and it is a book all about hunter gatherer economies nice and i love that title limited wants unlimited means because in the book he says in the first few chapters about how this is the world of hunter gatherer you got unlimited resources but you don't have a lot of needs but in the modern world you have unlimited wants and very limited ways to get it I think in the when you study the traditional cultures, you know, especially if you're traveling by canoe or something, or just maybe backpack in the in the south here, um, you had to you could only have so many things because you had to bring it with you. But now we've got storage spaces and huge. The house that I bought a couple of years ago in northern Maine, three giant outbuildings, right, big barns and stuff. And you know, if you've ever built a barn, anybody out there listening, you think, oh, this thing, I'll never fill it up. A year later, it's full. Like, And you don't even know why. You don't even know why. I go in there and I'm like, why is there just this giant pile of sticks in the corner? Like, who thought yeah. we needed to save them? And like, somebody threw them in there. Like, oh, this is my project. And Yeah. So we, at the end of every semester, we have this big day where we take all the half-finished projects and burn them all. Ah, so I like, like that. get rid of it. Get Otherwise, it back to it the just, earth. It just starts to fill everything up. Yeah. Uh, have you ever read any of the uh, work by Jared Diamond? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. That that initial premise, I guess, was what him his started his whole thesis about that question was why do you have so much stuff? Remember he was getting off that boat. That dude's like, why you got all this stuff? <laughs> it's like, oh, I didn't think. Of, what did he say? Was that, I got a was this case. A guns, germs, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep, Remember yep. he was saying I got a case for my my toothbrush. And the guys, like you don't need that case for your toothbrush. <laughs> I I had a case for my toothbrush when I was reading that at the time. I scratched my head. I was like, why do we need all this stuff? We don't need all this stuff. Um, super fascinating though, in that book where he talks about the, uh, just to sort of 
put Western society uh, yeah. under the microscope where he talks about how a modern stone age person living in New Guinea is likely much more intelligent than a, like a modern American because they're out actively solving problems with their brain all the time. Whereas in our modern world, we're sort of passively taking in media all the time. Right. And like the difference in how the brain works. Uh, right. Hugely, hugely interesting to me. So I think, you know, one of the sweet spots that we have, and for me as an educator, is to get people out and actively solve practical problems. Yeah. So like, yeah, let's try it. Okay, how long is it going to take us if we start right now, right here with what we have on us? How long till we can get a fire going with no matches? So for example, going out, finding a tree, cart, cutting it into pieces, making a, a friction fire kit, or maybe switching gears and looking for the right rock and using a carbon steel blade and throwing a spark onto a mushroom or, or something like that. But, but those actively, uh, active problem solving events, I think are hugely important, I think for students, because it, that really flips a switch in their head. Yeah. And I think it allows every type of learner to get something, right? Because you get the kinesthetic learners who are obviously doing, you get the visual learners who may be watching the kinesthetic learners, right? You're hearing the the mentor, the facilitator explain for the auditory learners, and you're all doing something that I think is goal-oriented together. That's how the best forms of, well, the best days that I've seen at Natureversity is when the teacher's go to the kids and they say, here's a problem. We don't know the solution, but here's some resources and here's, you know, and that's it. And then watching them work together to achieve this common goal. And, um, I always just tell the, the, the staff, I'm like, look, just give them missions that they can complete together. You know, there's something about group cohesion. There is something about, um, doing things dangerously, but in a safe way you know, and building up these skills and problem solving all the time. There's always field guides around Natureversity and we always have like mystery of the week. Every week there's a mystery there, some weird thing. And they got to use a field guide to figure it out. And yeah, I would agree that hunter-gatherer societies are definitely more adept. But, you know, it's kind of like that old saying about, um, I got an elephant and a goldfish and a monkey. All right, all three of y'all climb this tree. Go. It's like, well... It's not really fair to the elephant and the goldfish. So, you know, I don't know that it's, like you said, we can't superimpose our Western stuff onto hunter-gatherer societies no more than we can the opposite, right? Hunter-gatherers onto Western. So where do you find that medium happy grounds where you're getting a little bit of the both? And that's why I really liked Jared Diamond's uh, second or third book, The World Until Yesterday, where he does that comparative analysis to all the hunter-gatherer cultures to modern day stuff. I don't know if you've read. I did not read that one. That one really made, it made gums, germs, and steel a lot better, first of all, but it really gave me a point to begin to go, how can I incorporate some of this into what I'm doing now and begin to walk that kind of razor's edge between the two worlds? So, yeah. Well, Tim, this has been a lot of fun, man. Yeah. I know you come to Austin all the time, so do you mind doing this again? I'd love to. I'm having a ball. Like, usually if I'm here, you know, I I come uh, right from the woods in northern Maine. The town I have is a population of like 130 and a huge geographic area. And then I'm down here and it's culture shock. And when I'm here, I'm basically (laughs) Mr. Mom. I walk the dog. I cook for the kids. I do all this. Oh, I bet they love it. So I like... uh, Are are your kids into the survival stuff? Not really. Not yet. Uh, Not yet. Not yet. Um, You know, my son's been up uh last summer and we went out to a nice beautiful remote spot and things but um yeah we'll see 
I grew up playing hockey and I remember playing hockey with the kids whose dads really wanted to be hockey players, but weren't and kind of forced their kids into mm-hmm. it. And the, the second they could quit doing it, they did. So yeah. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be that kind of parent. Yeah. I don't think, but you know, what's funny is the way it always, the, the pendulum swings, right? My, both my parents, my dad was raised, uh, in the army and, you know, went up, grew up doing outside things all the time, moved around. My mom was too. They, so they were both army brats, I guess you'd say they moved around, but then they, you know, were kind of like outside all the time. And the moment that they got to be 18, they both went to school for computer engineering. Nice. And so because of the woodsy upbringing and all the travel and always being outside in the middle of nowhere places, army bases and stuff, they wanted to do computers. And then I grew up with computers all the time. Like I could disassemble everything, put computers back to part, you know, uh, take them apart, put them back apart. But the moment I turned 18, I was like, boop, out in the woods. I instantly was like at Tom Brown survival school and all that stuff. So it's funny how the pendulum swings like that. And Super funny. And even on a bigger scale, I have a, a bunch of friends from England, um, Great Britain, and over there, part of it was probably Ray Mears' TV shows that were super popular, but every kid wanted to do bushcraft or, you know, wooden yeah. skills. And then when we go up north to the Cree, um, you know, literally they just had their village for like 15, 20 years. All the young people there want a job in town because they want, you know, the new pickup or something. And But then all these British kids who have no access to anything land-wise, they all wanted to be, you know, wilderness guides. And yeah. things. So it's like... You know, the, maybe it's whatever you're raised with, you sort of naturally gravitate to the other side. I really do think that is the way it is. You know, I'm just, and, and no matter what it is for me, when my mom was like, don't be getting tattoos, I wanted tattoos, you know, and, and then suddenly when, yeah, you know, I just, <laughs> it's just the way it's always going to be, I suppose. So how can we learn more about Jack Mountain Bushcraft and where can we follow you? Um, yeah. Yeah, us. we're on the web at, uh, jackmtn.com or if you just google jack mountain bushcraft school uh we'll come up there we've got our own private online uh forum and uh online classroom space at bushcraftschool.com and it's free to join um but you know you don't get tracked there i think social media seems to be falling out of favor with the majority of people now so they're looking for alternatives so if if this is the sort of thing you're into then that might be a good landing spot for you yeah Um, and you said earlier you do have a podcast are those episodes still up can we still listen to those oh yeah we've got i think 105 episodes and i keep thinking about dusting it off and bringing it back um but I just, yeah, after a hundred episodes, I just felt like I had already told all the stories numerous times and, you know, you're sort of plagiarizing yourself and maybe, maybe let it sit for a bit beforehand. Yeah. Well, there is so much that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but I'm excited to have you back on and, uh, thanks so much again. Yeah. Happy to do it. Happy yeah. to do it. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right, everybody. We'll see you on our next episode. Y'all take care.